This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 180,000 titles for smartphone, tablet, and desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice and to help Trek FM at the same time, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. And also by Enterprise in Space, an international program of the nonprofit National Space Society. Find out how you can help science and education and become a virtual crew member aboard the NSS Enterprise Orbiter by visiting enterpriseinspace.org. And if you want to join the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode, join the Babel Conference, our listeners group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field. We look forward to seeing you there. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry and you're listening to Trek FM. taking all these books? I thought I'd take some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to episode number 267 of Literary Treks, your official Star Trek books and comics podcast here on the Trek FM network. I'm Bruce Gibson. Thank you for joining us. And with me reading books is Dan Gunther. How you doing, Dan? Just, just give me a second. I'm almost done this chapter. Okay, there we go. Now I can talk. Hey, Bruce, how's it going? <laughs> it's going good. You know, uh, I'm already jumping ahead to the next book for next week's show. Mm-hmm. So that's always a good thing when I feel like I'm kind of starting getting ahead of myself, which is which is good. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing the same thing. Uh, I usually like to be a little bit more ahead than I am right now, but uh, still doing okay (laughs) yeah but we don't want to get too far ahead because when we get too far ahead then we're like wait what was that book about again that was a few weeks ago (laughs) that's true there were actually uh from our discussion about available light there were a couple of times where i had to go oh no 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 wait that was from uh that was from articles of the federation okay you know and uh, just a couple little times i got a little bit mixed up especially since you know they're kind of dealing with some of the same events and stuff yeah, that's true, because all of a sudden you can start mixing up books and wait, did I read that in this book or was that in another book? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> but hopefully we won't have that problem on today's episode where the feature is on the book Burning Dreams. This is a TOS book written by Margaret Wander Bonanno, and it is about Captain Christopher Pike. And we're trying to review several of the Pike novels since Pike has been featured on season two of Discovery. So this should be an interesting discussion based on his character, but also how that relates to Discovery. So I'm sure we'll touch on some of that. But in the meantime, we do have a comic we want to review. We have Star Trek Year Five that has just come out, issue number one. And this series is going to take place over the course of two years, from what I understand. Well, the releases are monthly for the next two years. So it takes place in that five, it takes place in that fifth year of the original five year mission of Kirk, Spock, McCoy, et cetera, et cetera. And this is from IDW. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what this whole series has in store for us. 
Yeah, definitely. Me too. Uh, I think when this series was first announced, I wasn't aware of the scope of it and how long it was really going to be. But uh, I think we're really in for some pretty cool uh, stories over a long period of time, especially if this first issue is any indication. Ah, yeah. You know, I was like, oh, yet again, more stories during the fifth year of the five-year mission. <laughs> you know, I feel like every <laughs> author out there wants to fill in that last year. But it's worth, you know, checking out because the stories are always really good. And this one's written by two writers, Jackson Lansing and Colin Kelly. And the art is by Stephen Thompson. And I want to say, going straight out into this, the art, I thought, is fantastic. I just, like, a lot of times I read comics and I'll say, oh, I really like the art. But this one really sold me right away. Yeah, there's some really great stuff I'm noticing with shadows and, and darkness and that kind of old fashioned, um, you know, where you can kind of see the pencil strokes a little bit more than, you know, some of the more uh, pristine looking uh, art that we've gotten a lot of lately. I, I really love like the close ups of Kirk's face on this first page and stuff uh, and the shadows and there's this mysterious gunman behind him. It's just absolutely gorgeous. It It immediately captured me with that first page. And I think it's different from other art that we've seen in some Star Trek comics. So that's what stood out to me, too. It's like mm -hmm. you said, those shadows and everything. So it was something a little different. Yeah, definitely. It's it's a totally different style than we've gotten in any of the other titles lately anyway. And so just so people know, we're just going to go through this first issue and of course, if you haven't read it and you don't want to be spoiled, then go read it and come back uh, because, you know, we're going to touch on some things that might spoil little things here and there. But there's not anything big spoiler because this is really the first issue of multiple issues. So it's just starting to set up the story. And as Dan mentioned in the first page, we see that there's a gun being held to Kirk's head. Now, Kirk is sitting on the bridge in his command chair and he starts stating the these are the voyages of the starship enterprise it's five-year mission da, 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 and he's just stating that as the gun is in the back of his head and the guy's like or whoever this is because we don't really see the person just the shadow are you ready now captain and he's like to boldly go where no man has gone and then you go to the next page and it says before and the before means now we're going to what happened before this incident i mm -hmm. like that transition yeah, it was a very clever little uh, segue into that for sure, because you see that a lot in comics, right? Before and then it, you know, after the little preview or the little we get a flashback and that's exactly what they've done here, but also woven it into that opening monologue, which is really cool. <laughs> yeah, I really like that. So the Enterprise is near this, this hyper giant is what they you know call it, and they're doing Operation you're a Boris and essentially this energy in this hypergiant is going to explode at some point. And of course, even though there's some planets that are nearby that aren't inhabited, it's going to be big enough that it's going to cause extinction outside of, I guess that solar system or whatever. I don't know, but anyway, it's going to be extreme as Spock says, and so the Enterprise is there to help take care of it and basically suck this energy that comes from it, the gamma energy, and create this never-ending wormhole 
so that it's basically controlling the energy from this so it's not destroying the other planets. That's a very simplistic way of saying this, unless you have something to add to that, Dan. <laughs> no, that pretty much sums it up. And it's it sounds very dangerous, and of course it is. But Spock echoes Kirk's words from the series and says, you know, I have no objections to this whatsoever. This is a Starfleet vessel. Risk is our business. <laughs> I thought that was really great. Yes, I love that part too. Um, and then we've had got, uh, you know, they're doing the mission. They're successful at what they're doing. And then I like we go to a scene later where Kirk is looking at one of the viewports and Bones walks in with some drinks and it's like, hey, yeah, let's have a drink. This is my prescription for you. And Kirk says, Admiral Kirk to him. Mm-hmm. And McCoy's like, Admiral Kirk, well, congratulations. We should celebrate. But Bones, I don't want to go home. And so they have this whole conversation of how, you know, he doesn't want to go home. And he talks about literature, how over the course of history, that there were people who told stories or authors that didn't necessarily write them in books right away, but had to remember the stories until they were written and pass it on. And it became history just repeating these stories just the same way Kirk always repeats Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise when he does his logs. And by repeating that, he feels like that will last throughout history. Is that that's kind of the way I took that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's kind of he's almost facing an identity crisis because he doesn't know uh, who he is if he isn't Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. And he doesn't want to be promoted. And this is something that we see play out in, you know, the motion picture and the Wrath of Khan and all this sort of stuff. His place is on the bridge of the Enterprise. And uh, he's really coming to terms with the fact that he does not want to leave there. And I think that's going to set the tone for this whole series because this is, like we said, the final year of the five-year mission. And we know at the end of that, he goes and becomes an admiral. So this is kind of this uh, leading up to that. And he's not ready to face that and will never be ready as, as we know. I was surprised how early this came up in the mission because mm-hmm. it is mentioned that they've been, they just finished their fourth year, that they are starting their fifth year of the five-year mission and the fact that he's already been offered the position of admiral i wasn't really quite expecting that yet i thought that would be more towards the end of the five-year mission yeah i thought the same thing i thought this would be uh something introduced part way into the series i i didn't expect it this early either yeah but i wonder if he's going to take the promotion eventually hmm. <laughs> i don't know hmm <laughs> probably only if they get these really cool spiffy new gray and white admiral uniforms yeah i take it then <laughs> oh my gosh if you could wear that of course oh yes be an admiral. <laughs> <laughs> but then later on uh we get a distress call from the tholians which i thought was interesting that we brought the tholians into this and the rest of the story about half the last half of this issue is them beaming down to this planet and finding that the tholians are dead somebody had killed them and, and they're speculating what could have happened and one theory is well tholians could have fought other tholians it could have been some like civil war or something between their own uh species and i really enjoyed 
going into the Tholian story, especially since recently there was an episode of Warp 5, episode 187, that they had James Swallow and they just talked about the Tholians and, and how they've been represented on the TV shows and the novels and comics and such. And so it was great to get more insight into Tholians in this issue. Yeah, the Tholians are definitely one of those species that you know, they're really cool and mysterious. And we got just that little glimpse of them in the original series. And since then, just tiny bits here and there in canon Star Trek. So uh, it's really cool that they're using the Tholians here. Um, when they come to the conclusion or the the supposition that it might have been Tholians attacking Tholians, one thing that I noticed that they did really well, just as an aside here, was uh, in the original series, a lot of times you see this thing where Kirk kind of gets an idea and speaks of it in kind of a roundabout way. And Spock eventually goes, ah, Captain, you mean blah, blah, blah. And they totally do that here where Kirk starts talking about the Iliad and, you know, Spock's like an Earth epic, one of your species classics. So Kirk starts talking about the Trojan War, uh, the city of Troy versus the entire known world. But they were all Greek. And Spock says, ah, you're suggesting the Tholians attacked. And like, I just love that little bit of just a little something that really fits well with how Kirk and Spock uh, interact on the show. And they really got that across well here. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I did feel a lot of this comic was really hitting that stride of how these characters interact with one another. And uh, it really makes this uh, issue even more feeling like Star Trek when we read it. So, mm-hmm. um but yeah, I, I guess we'll kind of just jump ahead. I mean, the Tholian does jump out. You can't shoot a Tholian, but Kirk took this device that they had down there and just jury rigged it and was able to shoot the Tholian a hole right through it because it used some, uh, in the resonators, vibrational regulator was able to just, you know, we put a hole through them. <laughs> of course, mm-hmm. right? It only takes vibrational regulators to do that. <laughs> and I mean, Kirk's on the ball. He's got this, right? You know, your your Vulcan science officer who's brilliant isn't going to come up with this. It's going to be Kirk that comes up with this. So, you know, I almost feel like we're getting an original series episode where William Shatner's there on set counting the lines in the script and saying, no, I think Kirk needs to be the one to come up with this. <laughs> Well, that's funny you said that because you were saying it, it seems like something more Spock would do. A science officer would come up with this idea, but Kirk does it. But at the same time, Spock is punching the Tholian, which you would <laughs> expect Kirk to do. <laughs> and incidentally, uh, broke his hand in the process. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Spock. Oh. But uh, then up on the bridge on the Enterprise... Uh, Kirk gets, you know, they're still on the planet, but Kirk gets a communication from Scotty, who's on the bridge, and he says, oh, Leo, Captain, we detected that distress signal, but somebody else did too, and a ship shows up, and uh, there's some worry on that as to who that is. I mean, first I thought, oh, are those Tholians in a different kind of ship, or is this something else? I'm guessing it's someone else. That's my guess as well. I feel like if it was the Tholians, it would be more like that. I mean, the ship is very angular, but it doesn't feel like that triangular Tholian design that you think they would use if they were trying to make you think it was the Tholians. Yeah, that's what I was thinking too. And uh, so then we get to the last page, and I want your help on this because I'm a little confused 
because they start to beam up and then they lift, I guess, I don't know, like they, they look into like some little cavern or something and there's a Tholian in there alive. And Kirk says the entire weight of the galaxy, trillions of worlds balanced at a single point on the life of a child, Mr. Scott, and the most dangerous decision of my entire career. One more to beam up. Now, how, when he says one more to beam up, is he's talking about him or the Tholian? I think he means the Tholian child that they found. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's where it's going on. This whole section was really interesting. And like, I've really enjoyed the issue up to this point, but this is the part that really grabbed me because the whole voiceover, the whole, uh, you know, um, narration here is done as a personal log of Admiral James T. Kirk. So he's looking back on this incident as like the turning point for some big thing. So, you know, it, it adds this import to this decision, which I find really fascinating. And I, I think that's what they're doing is they're beaming up this Tholian who would seem to be a child. He's a lot smaller. And, and Kirk says, you know, uh, the entire, weight of the galaxy bounced on a single point on the life of a child. I'm, I'm thinking that's this Tholian. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. Yeah. And I agree with you on the Admiral Kirk thing. That was one of those things I almost had to do a double take. I'm like, wait, personal log Admiral Kirk? Wait, no, he's not an Admiral. Oh yeah, this is him looking back at this event. And you're right, this happens in the last three pages of the issue. So it's revealed that he actually does become an admiral someday. Who would have known that? <laughs> it's a little odd because the story starts with a flashback from Kirk on the bridge, and he's still a captain then, obviously. But then it ends with uh, a voice from even further in the future reminiscing on these events. So it could be a little confusing exactly uh, you know, where the narration is coming from, but... Yeah, I, I think that's what they're going for. <laughs> yeah, I think so, too. So I'm really looking forward to the next issue. There's a preview of the cover in here that shows a Tholian, you know, big and prominent on the cover right over Spock, Kirk and McCoy with the web kind of ingrained into that image. So, yeah, I think this is really exciting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I have to say I'm much more into this issue than I thought I would be. So. Uh, it's off to a really great start, and it's really grabbed me with this issue for sure. It's a Tholian grab. <laughs> <laughs> They've got me in their web, absolutely. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and take a look back at Literary Treks episode number 265, and that episode was called The Music of Big Pink. So let's look at the post for this episode and see what our listeners were saying about that episode. Now, that episode was about Articles of the Federation, and we had author Keith R.A. DeCandido on to discuss it. So the first post we have in here is from Justin Ozer, and he says, Great interview with Keith DeCandido. Also, thank you for asking my question about the SCE two-parter Invincible, which I absolutely love. Keith had some great insights about that story. Yeah, you know, it's kind of good to kind of sneak another thing in there when you have an author on and not just talk about the book that he's on talking about, but let's see what other things are out there. Definitely, yeah. And I, I like that Justin asked that question because it's it's definitely a little bit more on the obscure end of some of the Star Trek stuff. So it was very cool. 
Uh, in that episode, we also talked about Aaron Harvey uh, having a new book coming out soon, uh, the official guide to the Star Trek, the animated series. And Aaron says, thanks guys. I literally just turned the book in this week. So sorry for the radio silence between work, improv classes and writing slash designing the book. I haven't had much time for anything else. So, you know, I gotta say, I'm really excited to get my hands on this book because there hasn't been one for the animated series before. And it's clear that Aaron Harvey has been putting a lot of work into it. So definitely excited to check that out and i'm really excited that he's taking improv classes because i love doing improv (laughs) (laughs) so then brandon harbeck says this was a great episode i've seen a lot of this information on trek bbs but there were still some new pieces of information and it's wonderful to hear discussion of such a unique high quality trek novel You know, I love going into Trek BBS, but I'm not in there enough. And it's probably a good thing I don't, because if I read everything in Trek BBS, I'd probably just repeat it on the show and not come up with anything unique. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and there's lots on there for sure. So I'm glad we can bring a bit of a different perspective for sure. Uh, Casey Pettit says, it's sad that Crad, that kind of rhymes, and Crad, K-R-A-D, Keith R.A. DeCandido, it's sad that Crad hasn't been able to write any further Trek novels. He has a great spirit about it, and I'm glad he's been able to continue writing in other universes, including some original fiction. You know, I absolutely agree. Uh, It's good that, you know, he's been writing other stuff, but darn it, you know, I think I'm as broken up about him not writing Star Trek as he is because we've read some really great Keith DeCandido novels in the last few episodes and I would love to see him back at it again. Yeah. Let Simon and Schuster know you want Keith back. So I would be happy to see that too. And Kay Frick says, thanks for another great interview. I really hope that Crad writes another Trek novel soon. CK. Yes. Let them know. Exactly. Um, maybe a disco version of the politics and people of the Federation would be really good. Put a pic of Ethan Peck's Spock on the cover and it would be a bestseller. Ooh, I love that idea. Yeah, I would buy that book. <laughs> Who am I kidding? I buy all the Star Trek books, but, you know, <laughs> n- ah, never mind. <laughs> I would definitely read that, of course. Now, what you're trying to say is even if you weren't buying Star Trek books, you'd still buy that one. Yeah, totally. sure we'll go with that (laughs) well i say we go with the feature and talk about captain christopher pike because i think this will be a really fun one i agree so now this book called burning dreams by margaret wander bonanno came out in 2006 and it was the 40th anniversary of star trek as a matter of fact if you look at the original cover it says at the very top celebrating 40 years of star trek now the version i have i have the paperback the original one because i bought it when it came out in the back cover it shows the crucible trilogy by david r george the third and i really love that trilogy because it focuses one book focuses on mccoy the next one focuses on spock the next one focuses on kirk And even though this Burning Dreams novel is a different author, I always kind of felt this one was like a subset of those three, like this would be the fourth, because it gives us this background information on Pike. It doesn't fit into Crucible, but it's doing that same thing where it's kind of giving you this detail of this character and the history of the character of Christopher Pike. 
Yeah, definitely. It, you know, if nothing else, it was at the time the definitive Pike novel. And I think it really still is because, yeah, it talks about his life from his early years as a young boy all the way up until, you know, the accident that uh, put him in the wheelchair. And then even beyond that, uh, his time on Talos 4 and how that all ends up. So, yeah, this is definitely, you know, the life story of Pike. You could almost do this as one of those books by David A. Goodman, the autobiography of fleet captain Christopher Pike, the story of one of Starfleet's noblest legends or something like that. Yeah, you're right. It would fit into something like that, too. So it is it is like a biography in a sense of uh Christopher Pike. And we wanted to touch on this among other Christopher Pike novels because of his recent appearance on Star Trek Discovery. So let's go ahead and kind of get into the book. It starts off with Spock in 2320. And I don't remember exactly what happens at this point, but I think he gets this message or he's being called to from the Talosians to return to, uh, to Talos four. So, um, but then we go into the story, Christopher Pike in his early years as a kid. And I think he's about nine or 10 years old by this point. And we see that he's being raised by his mother. He doesn't have a father. It's just his mother who's raising her, raising him. And her name is Willa McKinney's not Pike mm-hmm. McKinney's, which I thought was interesting. And we see at this point that she just has recently married, uh, Heston Prescott and, Heston is now Chris's stepfather and they're traveling to a new colony world, this frontier world of Elysium where Heston is going to practice terraforming and he's going to harness a volcano and he's using this technology that he calls the gizmo. They wants to control flooding and earthquakes. He's just all about like weather control and earth control and all these things. And he almost becomes like too obsessed with it. I mean, first it starts off, it seems very natural, but then all of a sudden there's like this obsession that starts to come up with Heston about trying to fix the planet. And and even though there's earthquakes and, and certain things happening where their house is on a fault line, the Federation is sending a starship to come and, and basically take them away or help fix the problem or move them somewhere else. And he's just determined to fix it himself before they get there. So that being said, what did you think at this point, Dan? Um, I, I'm enjoying it at this point. I'm, I'm liking the uh, the conceit of telling the story in flashbacks because basically what we're getting is kind of this story is being told at this point by Pike to Vina after he's arrived on Talos four and we're getting the story of his first love as he says, and and turns out to be this horse. (laughs) And, uh, I I'm really enjoying seeing life through his eyes and, you know, the story really holds true to the idea of it being from the perspective of the kid, because as anyone who's, you know, been a kid, which is everyone knows there's certain things, you know, and certain things you don't know. And and you see things from that perspective that when you're an adult and you later look back on it, you're like, Oh, that's what that meant. That's what was going on and all this sort of stuff. So I really enjoyed that perspective. And, uh, you know, his stepfather Heston, you really come to know as, you know, this kind of father figure who seems like a very good influence. You know, he, uh, 
asks, um, you know, says to Christopher, you don't have to call me dad, but you know, when you're ready, you can, that kind of thing. Yeah. It um, seems like that things are really good. Things are cool here at the beginning. Yeah. It's, it's very, it seems very good, but then gradually as, as the story goes on, you see, like you said, this obsession he has and this hubris, this, this belief that he can control things that are obviously well out of his control. And even when he's given, you know, the helping hand, he doesn't take it. He's, you know, I can do this myself. And, you know, even going so far as to putting Chris in danger when he's helping him do this work and this sort of thing. So, you know, because this part of the story is from the perspective of the kid too, you, you trust this person and you're kind of going along with it and it gets far beyond that point. Well, you know, before you realize it's gone that far, it's all of a sudden like to the nth degree. It was a little odd to me because I thought he had a good relationship with Heston at the beginning, which he, for the most part, did. And by the way, I was picturing a young Charleston Heston as Heston because of the <laughs> name Heston. And, you know, as as the story progressed, I wasn't really quite sure why Heston changed, why he was so obsessed. Now, he always could have been this way, and both Chris and the readers don't know this of his character, but I started to dislike the character over time where in the beginning I liked him. And then I was feeling bad for Chris Pike, who's not Pike at this point, but you know, it's just, and, and his mother, I mean, she married this man and I kept thinking, well, what happened to his biological father? And you know, this whole situation is just, it gets to a point where as Chris is getting older, he's getting a little more, strong i guess because he's standing up to heston and he's starting to realize that heston isn't doing right and so he starts to get more of a backbone to him and standing up to him like no i'm leaving you're messing this up i'm not staying for this i'm i'm going away i'm heading off back home i'm not going to help you with this and so i just kept thinking like what was this situation like to make him into the man he became that he's able to recognize what is right and wrong and stand up for it. Yeah, I definitely get that for sure. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I might be off base here, but I feel like we've all kind of had that situation where you're, you're helping your parents or your dad or something like that. And, you know, they're, they're getting like irrational about something like, you know, I don't know, the tractor's not starting or whatever. And they start, getting a little angry and maybe, you know, throw a tool or something like that. And, you know, it kind of scares you as a kid, but generally, and at least in my case, that was just like a, oh, he got angry, but you know, he's not completely off his rocker. And in this case, it goes beyond that. Like you can totally see that, you know, he's endangering Chris's life and all this stuff. And, uh, yeah, I really think that some of that was very formative to Chris, that he was able to see that for what it was and realize what is right and what is wrong and, and, and kind of form that basis for his morality and, and ethics going forward, if that makes sense. Yeah, totally makes sense to me. Um, and before we move forward with that, one thing I want to touch on when we're talking about controlling the environment, as they came to this colony world there was this group of people called the New Worlders, and they kind of remind me of the Amish, where you know the Amish don't use modern day technologies; they they use 
you know, some of them don't have electricity and such. But these New Worlders, even though they're traveling on ships of the 23rd century, they don't really believe in 23rd century technology. And they only use technology that takes you up to the point of the end of the 20th century. So they'll drive cars, but they won't drive shuttlecrafts, for example, or fly shuttlecrafts and stuff. And I, I first I thought it was interesting and there was a relationship that Chris had with this girl that was a new worlder. And then, you know, that kind of dissolved and then it came back again. And there was a whole dynamic between Chris and the new worlds were the new worlders and Heston and the new worlders. And then I just felt like it just kind of petered out. Like it didn't seem to go anywhere for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I was kind of, trying to think of what the new world is represented in the book and like what they, and, and, you know, I, I think it's, you know, partially, um, the forces that are arrayed against, you know, Chris's stepfather here and that sort of thing. Um, but also, you know, what, what this, uh, young girl that, you know, he kind of takes a liking to, was it silk? Was that her name? Yeah. Silk. Mm -hmm. Right. And, uh, you know, they talk a little bit about his first love and that sort of thing. And you can tell there's a little bit of chemistry between them and she's interested in his world. And, you know, he's not really all that interested in her world because, you know, to him, the new worlders are kind of crazy with their view of the universe. But at the same time, she kind of brings just a different perspective to him. And, you know, I was kind of trying to think of how we see Pike portrayed um, mostly I would say in the cage and the menagerie because obviously discovery hadn't been written yet, but he kind of had that folksy, um, charm. And I th- was thinking when I was reading this, maybe he got a bit of that from his interactions with the new worlders and with silk that, you know, um, maybe that kind of reliance on technology and, and being just, you know, a bit more of a folksy type person. Uh, he got that from that. And then if you want to bring discovery into that, I think you really see that in discovery. Um, I think he gets that from other places as we learn later in the book about, you know, him living on earth and that sort of stuff too. But, you know, early on I was thinking, oh, maybe that's kind of where this comes in. Although we don't really see that play out in the book. Yeah. It just, I I guess I just was really missing the point of the new worlders as, as the story went along. And I I like what you're saying about his character and maybe that's, you know, the influence of them is how he's got more folksy or whatever. But then I also don't know because Heston is so obsessed with controlling the environment with technology, which is the opposite of the new worlders. So I'm not sure if the lesson here is that the new worlders were able to survive on the planet without technology or Heston wasn't able to survive on this planet because of the gizmo and he was relying too much on technology and trying to be too much in control. I was just trying to figure out if there was a message like that that was going on, but it didn't really come across that way to me. Yeah. And I, I, you know, maybe he sees in the new worlders that, you know, maybe their way sometimes is the right way because they're a little less reliant on technology. Uh, but yeah, like you said, it doesn't really play out that way in the book. It doesn't really come across. I found the new worlders really interesting because, you know, it's very arbitrary. Like they use technology that was invented, you know, before the end of the 20th century and then nothing else. So like you said, they drive uh, gasoline powered cars, which we find out are, are powered by chicken 
parts or something somehow. They don't really <laughs> yeah. get into it, but they kind of hint at that. And they use cell phones, which, um, you know, I, I don't know if they've set up cell towers or, or <laughs> how that exactly works, but okay, sure. Um, you know, but then I started thinking like, I guess the Amish are kind of arbitrary too, because they'll use technology up to a certain point and then anything after that is, is verboten, you know? So, uh, I, I guess it is all kind of arbitrary really when you think about it. I remember when they were on this, uh, ship heading to the colony planet, it was questioned why the new worlders, if they, if they don't use new technology, why are they willing to ride into starship? And you just mentioned the Amish and for a period of time, I lived in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where there's a lot of Amish. And even though there's, you know, sects of Amish that don't drive cars, they'll ride in a car. Mm. Somebody, you know, they can't own a car. They can't operate the car, but they could ride in one if they need to to get to work. It's got to be somebody else's, somebody, you know, in the world that's not them. <laughs> so. Yeah, and it's very similar. They they won't fly their own starships, but they'll get on board that one over there. That that's fine. <laughs> that's like me going on my business trips. I'll get on an airplane, I just won't fly it. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then I want to go back, you know, when we're talking about Heston and Chris and, and Willa. There's another character that's involved in this group, and his name is Charlie. And Charlie is employed by Heston to help breed the horses there. And so all of a sudden, as things start to fall apart over time between Chris and Heston, you start to see a bond between Chris and Charlie. And Charlie almost becomes the new surrogate father for Chris. And there's one point where Chris is helping Charlie with the birth of a new horse that once it's born, it dances. And Chris is like, well, maybe I'll call it Dancer. No. Tango. And that's where he gets the horse Tango because it likes to dance. But uh, I'm, I really like the dynamic between Charlie and Chris. And I don't want to get into spoilers quite yet, but we're going to hit spoilers here soon. But I was a little suspicious about Charlie. Like I felt like there had to be more to him than just he's just there helping with the horses. Because at one point then Chris does hear Charlie and his mother talking and they're talking about Heston and the way they're discussing things makes Chris believe that maybe there's an affair going on between Charlie and his mom, which upsets him. Yeah. And this really is where we start to get into what I was talking about before, where you see things through the eyes of the child and he doesn't have all the information, you know, he doesn't know all the relationships here and, and we'll get into stuff when we get into spoilers but yeah at this point he he has his suspicions um and he's always afraid to ask because in his mind his mother is up on this pedestal she's you know the one who raised him and and you know he really doesn't want to think any less of her for anything like that so you know anytime he kind of starts to get close to thinking along those lines he backs right away from it and and just won't ask like won't do anything to kind of figure that out because he's scared of what the answers might be and and yeah this charlie character definitely you know i i had my suspicions about him um you know he comes along to help raise the horses and ends up staying for for quite a while and there's definitely this undercurrent of mistrust of him by 
um, Heston and, you know, what's going on there? Like there seems to be like this kind of automatic, uh, anytime Charlie has a suggestion, Heston has to kind of, Oh, you're an expert in that now. Great. You know, he's obviously threatened by him somehow. Yeah. Which I couldn't really think why he kept him around to begin mm -hmm. with. Like, why did he really need Charlie? Because he even said at one point that, you know, the horses weren't that important to him. That's what Heston was saying. But he's got Charlie there dealing with the horses. Yeah. I To me, I felt like, you know, his suggestions did work and he was helping with the horses. And if, you know, Charlie failed at, at, at raising the horses, that would have just been kind of one more failure kind of thing. So I feel like that's kind of why he kept him around. Um that that kind of explained it in my head anyway. <laughs> Do you think that uh, the Heston was jealous of Charlie's relationship with Chris? I I think there was part of that for sure. And I mean, I agree when you say part yeah. of it, because I don't really feel there was much jealousy, but I think there might have been some. But I don't, I don't think he really minded that Chris was having a closer relationship with Charlie than himself. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's hard to say a lot without getting into spoilers. Here. Well, then go ahead, because it's time for spoilers. I think okay. we say we get into that. All right. So, yeah, we'll get into spoilers. Um, we find out much later in the novel, uh, of course, that Charlie is actually Christopher Pike's um, actual biological father. And so, you know, a lot of that is retroactively explained it makes sense that you know um heston was kind of uh wary of him because of this prior relationship that he had with his wife and um but i think that also explains why he wasn't really jealous of his relationship with chris because he kind of knows like oh he's his father you know i'll just kind of back off in that so now that's what i was gonna ask you I mean, because I don't re- recall it stating that Heston knew that Charlie was his father. I just I kind of think, in retrospect assumed he did because I didn't think that Willow would uh, keep that from him. You know, I, I, I didn't I didn't get the impression that their relationship was one that she would totally keep that secret from, you know, like I, I feel like if this guy shows up that relationship would be understood there. And I mean, maybe it wasn't, it's not outright said, but I I feel like just some of the defensiveness that, um, that Heston had is explained by him knowing about that previous relationship. And, you know, as much as he might try and fight that impulse, there's going to be that bit of competition there, you know? Yeah. But that's what makes me wonder why Heston would even have Charlie around. Was this more of Willa's idea? I mean, if if you're going to, if you're marrying someone and I'm talking Willa, if she's marrying this, this man and they just get married and they move and she goes, you know what? I had an affair with some guy. He's, (laughs) he's the father of my son. I know we just got married, but wouldn't it be great if he came along with us and we won't tell Chris that he's the father. Like, I, I, it just makes me really wonder why he was there, you know, yeah. why, meaning uh, why Charlie was there. I mean, maybe because he wanted to be close to his son. 
I don't know. But I guess what I'm saying is I would love to have seen a scene, maybe a flashback later, where there's that discussion between Charlie and Willa, where Charlie's maybe begging Willa, like, you know, let me come help out. I want to have a relationship with my son. And she says, well, let me get with Heston, make sure he's cool with it. And then for some reason, discuss why they don't want Chris to know, because why not let Chris know that Charlie is his biological father? Yeah, that aspect of it seems a little I, I can see somebody maybe making that decision so as not to completely disrupt a relationship between Heston and and Christopher, who, you know, he had adopted by that point, you know, so he was his father, his, you know, stepfather, but father nonetheless. And I, I feel like the relationship between Charlie and Willa was like over over. Like there was just no possible you know what I mean? Like it was one of those relationships where there's, there's not going to be that aspect to it because it's just a complete non-starter. So, you know, Charlie wouldn't be threatened by that necessarily. Um, even though there will still be that competitive competitiveness there because, you know, we're guys and we're idiots. (laughs) And I mean, this isn't the point in the novel or anything, but it just made me think it's what you're saying, you know, just makes me even wonder maybe Heston didn't know, you know, maybe. And I mean, that's possible. Like, like we said, it, it's never outright stated. Uh, maybe he didn't know. I, I, Really questioning Willa then, if that's the case. <laughs> like, well, if Willa did like- have a very close relationship with Charlie and it was just kind of a thing that was over and it's not just friends. And then, you know, Heston is hiring Charlie. She's like, oh, well, not that there's anything going on. There's nothing to worry about. I don't want to ruffle any feathers. I don't want to get Heston all up. You know, I don't know. I don't want to get too into that, but that's kind of (laughs) to me, that would be the kind of thing though. Like if, if Heston found that out after the fact, like now I'm angry. (laughs) Right. Right. So now they're on Dr. Phil talking about it. Yeah, exactly. The 23rd century version of Maury or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) So now that we just said that spoilers are out. So to add to that, then there's this fire that erupts. And because of this certain grass that is there, it really catches fire. Now, the buildings that they live in are fireproof, but I guess because there is all this this grass and weeds or whatever around the buildings, it was enough to then actually catch the buildings on fire. And we hear, we see that Chris wants to, he's near the barn or whatever with, with Charlie. He sees his mother at the house and she's like, don't come near me or whatever. And she dies in the fire and Heston dies then in the fire. And uh, so now it's just Charlie and Chris. And so they leave the planet together to go back to earth and they take Tango with them. And then, as you had mentioned earlier, you know, Heston adopted Chris through his marriage with Willa, but now we have Charlie. He decides to uh, adopt Chris and Charlie's last name is Pike. So now Chris gets the name of Pike. Now, I can't remember if this was before or after. I think this was before Chris finds out that Charlie's his actual biological father. Oh, yeah. It's way before because, like, Chris is uh, an adult. Like, he's already been That's in right. Starfleet before he finds out, which yeah. to me, like, that blows my mind. <laughs> like, the fact that they're keeping this secret. And and that comes up like Hobelia, who is Charlie's wife, is like, you know, why don't you tell him like he's going to be mad 
more mad the longer you wait. And he's like, yeah, when the time's right kind of thing. And yeah, Chris Pike is understandably very angry when he finds out. And I'm kind of surprised that Chris would take the Pike name. I mean, even though Charlie adopts him, you know, his mother died and he's going to go, well, now that you adopted me, I'm going to drop the name I've had all my life from my mom, even though she's dead and just go with yours. I don't know. That's, I mean, not, I'm just kind of surprised that he wouldn't just keep the McKinney's name because in honor of his mother who died, but yeah. whatever. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know the laws or anything like that, but it might be a legal thing. I, I don't know. It could um, be. I, don't know. I did grow up with someone uh, who had the last name. I can't remember right now, but she, she had a last name that started with L or something like that. And then like I met her years later and there had been like a divorce and an adoption and a remarry and her new last name was like two different names hyphenated oh, or yeah. something. So I was like, what? And like she wasn't married. This was just her name that she now had because she'd been adopted by, you know, and I was like, I don't, I don't understand. But yeah, I, I've always actually wondered since then, I've never looked it up if that's like a legal requirement or something, but I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. But that's how he becomes Chris Pike because Charlie Pike adopts him and he takes that last name. So now we we have Chris in his teenage years um, at this point. And, you know, he always seems to have a bit of a problem finding a girlfriend or he gets close to having girlfriends or whatever, but he's not very successful at it. He's not the ladies man like Kirk is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, he's definitely... Uh and I think they say he's very handsome and very good in school, but he just, yeah, doesn't really uh, connect with anybody long term, if that makes sense. But connecting long term, of course, we know he eventually connects with Vina. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> as you're saying, as you said earlier, there's this kind of flashback of Chris Pike with Vina telling these stories as, as we go along. And one thing about this, and as the book title suggests, Burning Dreams, fire is an element that keeps coming up again and again in this book and throughout Pike's life. As a matter of fact, early in the book, very early in the book, when on the ship heading to the colony, as Chris is seeing these visions of his past life and telling the story to Vina and the Talosians are looking into his mind and pulling these things out, there's a scene where a horse then catches on fire on the ship and pike's like no no that didn't happen and he's kind of questioning why th that vision why fire enters into the equation and so yes then his mother is lost in a fire and um that's you know and then of course uh, heston also is lost with the fire and so they keep using the collisions are using this imagery of fire to punish and sometimes i feel like to test uh Chris Pike. And we saw that also in the cage in the menagerie where fire was used with the Telosians with Pike. And there's a, there's an interesting moment in the book too. We revisit that where he's punished by the Telosians and it's kind of implied that, you know, if the Telosians had looked deeper, they'd realize that, you know, what this deep meaning that fire had to Pike and how they wouldn't have used it as punishment if they'd have known that because it kind of steals him. It gives him resolve because of, you know, his memories of his mother and that sort of thing. Um, 
but they basically just kind of looked at the surface of his mind and realized, oh, he hates fire. Let's use that. And he kind of that kind of almost uh, fortifies him against their mind control, which I thought was interesting. I thought that was an interesting take on that. Yeah. And I'm just trying to figure out, you know, why, why fire? I mean, I know it works, but it's like, what, what does fire really mean in, in Pike's life? And why does it keep coming up through his experiences? Because as we all know, what eventually happens to Pike, at least in the prime universe uh, it's not necessarily fire, but something close to it. It's like radiation. It's like it just seems like you know, there's these forces that are fire and radi- radiation, natural things that occur that seem to always affect Chris's life. And now I'm thinking about it more. Nature has something to do with Pike. Like nature, the good and bad of nature seem to influence Pike's life throughout his life, you know, horses, you know, living on this colony planet, the new worlders, all those things are kind of the positive natural side of nature and life. And then the forces that are unnatural and things that are dangerous that come with nature, like fire. And then the technology of the gizmo. I'm, I mean, just mentioning these things, I haven't really connected it, but there's something there that tells me that Chris's life is influenced by nature, the positive and the negative aspects of it. Mm-hmm. It's definitely a motif that, uh, and, and my, my English teacher, English 30 teacher will be very happy that I'm using literary terms here, but it is a motif that comes up a lot in, uh, in Pike's life. And yeah, what exactly it represents my English teacher might be disappointed in me. I'm not exactly completely sure, but it is definitely, you know, a thing that has, has influenced him from the very beginning of his life to the very end of his life. And, you know, I was trying to think of things like, you know, we have these phrases like a trial by fire and and all this stuff that, you know, these, these elements, these things harden people and, and become very formative events. And, you know, Christopher Pike is definitely someone who's been molded and formed by his experiences. And like you said, nature plays a very big part in that, both the like the natural world and the opposite of the natural world. I mean, you know, there's there's something elementally very frightening about radiation and and like that seems to almost be kind of the embodiment of technology gone awry, right? You know, this idea of this invisible uh, particles that can just totally wreak havoc on your body and, you know, does does so to Pike in a very visceral, visceral very horrific way. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure what it all means, but it's it's really interesting. <laughs> so now I want to go back and reread the book again. <laughs> just I to know. Kind of because yeah. also, you know, and you had mentioned in the notes, you know, Venus experiences are similar. She's, you know, was badly burned and damaged from the wreck of the ship of the Columbia when it crashed on the planet. Mm-hmm. And I mean, not reading too much into scenes uh, from, you know, a pilot episode that was never purchased, you know, over 50 years ago. But, you know, I'm wondering if there's something to read into Pike's reaction to seeing the badly burned Vena. And like what effect that has on him, given his experiences. And I think they mentioned briefly in the novel, like, you know, him seeing her just totally threw him off balance 
like that. And, you know, he didn't push as hard as he should have to say that you should come with us. He was just so distraught by it and, and that sort of thing. And I'm wondering if that kind of all figures in as well. Hmm. Yeah. It's almost as if he hasn't, he wasn't able to save his mother's life from the fire, but he's able to save the cadets lives during the radiation. Like he's mm-hmm. making up for that. Yeah. And, and I, I definitely think that's a, a very clear connection there as well, for sure. All right. Well, that just shows why this book is so good. <laughs> it is very good. Like I, I read, I read this years ago and, uh, um, yeah, probably around 2010, I think I read this book. Um, so almost a decade ago and yeah, it's, it's such a great book to reread. Yeah. I read this too, however long ago, but, uh, yeah, definitely worth the reread. And, um, speaking of, uh, you know, we've talked a little bit about discovery now we have Admiral Cornwell in Discovery that calls Pike the best of us. And of course, Cornwell is not mentioned in this book because her character never existed before. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, the best of us, that's, you know, the goodness in us. He embodies everything that Starfleet is, the ideals of sacrifice and duty. And we see that in this novel as well. And he does what is right. And to the point that Starfleet placed him aboard the Aldrin in order to catch the captain in his flouting of Starfleet protocol. And he rescues the cadets without a thought of his own well-being. And I think that gets back to what we were just discussing that, I mean, I think he would have done that with his mother, but Charlie stopped him, Mm -hmm. but there's no one here to stop him now. And I also think back to Vina. He wasn't there to rescue Vina to help her from a crash because he didn't, he wasn't, he didn't know where he wasn't there at the time it happened. But I think there's like all these connections in his life where people that he loves or people that he cares for, he hasn't been able to save. And maybe even in a sense that that's the same with Tango because Tango outlives Chris, but Mm -hmm. Tango means a lot to Chris. And it goes back to the beginning of the book where he had a vision of a horse on fire. And it's almost like, Maybe not that Tango needs saving because he lived, outlived Chris, but it's almost to me saying as if he's always worried that those he loves are are going to burn. And I mean, I think that even carries over into his experiences on the Aldrin where he becomes the first officer to this captain who's reckless and, you know, attacking vessels without provocation and that sort of thing. He He says basically like, yeah, my career is going to be over. You know, I could be court-martialed and found guilty, but I have to stop this. Like, I have to save this crew, and I have to, you know, keep the captain from killing those lives over there needlessly, who may be innocent lives. He has this this sense of self-sacrifice and duty, and Starfleet recognizes that in him, and we find out that's why he was put on that ship, was because they had suspicions about the captain and stuff. So... You know, this is definitely a thing that um, characterizes the kind of person he is. And, I, you know, that's something that it's very cool that the limited bit of this character that we get in the cage and repurposed for the menagerie, both Margaret Wander Bonanno 
And I think the writers of Discovery glommed onto this fact of Pike, you know, where in Discovery he says, you know, um, Starfleet is about, you know, duty and honor and we don't leave anybody behind. I give my life for you. You give your life for me. Like this is just such a huge part of his character. And, you know, where they get that from, of course, is that he went in and saved those cadets at the expense of his own uh, quality of life. And that's something very meaningful and very moving about that kind of character. So it makes sense that, you know, all of the people that have gone on to craft more of his story have kind of taken that and expanded upon it and said, this is the defining trait of this person. The word sacrifice keeps coming up. And I think that does seem to be not just a characteristic of Pike, but also of all the captains, Star Trek captains of the popular series and stuff that we watch and we read about. But to me, it's, I'm also thinking from this book that sacrifice is the underlying line of Pike. Like he's always about sacrificing himself for others. And just like you're talking about the Aldrin and the captain that he was dealing with, you know, it's like Pike realizes that he has to keep sacrificing himself to save lives. He's all about saving others by his own sacrifice. I think that's the thing that really defines who Pike is based on this novel. So yeah, I like that. So Mm. going back to what you're saying with discovery and different writers and such. So how does Pike in this novel compare to the Pike that we've seen in discovery, Dan? I think quite well. I mean, there's the surface details and you can, you can pick apart all the little things because of course this novel is non-canon. So the writers of Discovery were under no obligation to read it and take stuff out of it. So in Discovery, we learned that his father uh, taught science and comparative religion. And we don't see that in this book, of course, because, you know, they're two totally different stories. But if you go beneath the surface, I think uh, they're very similar. Um, the one thing I would say is I think the pike that we got in Discovery had kind of learned to enjoy life a little bit more than the Pike we see in this novel. Yes. Yeah. There's definitely that. And, and because of that, you know, it, it, I kind of tended to see Jeffrey Hunter a little bit more at times, but then at other times I was able to kind of bring in Anson Mount in my head and was like, Oh, okay. Because at this point, as weird as it is to say, we've seen way more of Anson Mount's Pike than we have of any other Christopher Pike. So, you know, it that influence was definitely there. But I think at the very core, these characters are very similar. And again, I think it's because the writers in both of these cases have really taken that idea of self-sacrifice and uh, giving your life for others and kind of writ large. I, I saw somewhere online and I don't want this to be offensive or anything, but somebody asked, is Christopher Pike the Jesus of Star Trek? <laughs> and I mean, you know, that's a very um, common theme in stories is the the self-sacrifice of of Jesus Christ. Right. And And like that idea is used in a lot of different stories in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, you, you watch a bunch of TV shows and and read a lot of books that, that imagery is really there because it's something that resonates for a lot of people reading and and watching these things. So, you know, I, I think 
you know, I maybe wouldn't go that far uh, because I don't want to offend anybody, but it's an interesting question to ask. I think those comparisons are definitely there. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the comparison, how Pike is depicted in this novel compared to Discovery. I think it is very close and very similar, but I did feel that this Pike in the novel was a little more stern, a little more had a little more misery, you know, Mm -hmm. and there was talk a lot of time about not being able to find love and not really having really successful relationships for the most part. And, and yeah, the one on discovery seemed a little more, you know, relaxed and more, you know, accepting life and enjoying it a little more than this one. But I mean, it's such a fine line, you know, I mean, we're kind of talking more of a serious character, story in this than what we were getting with Pike for most of those episodes of discovery. Mm -hmm. But I love the fact that, you know, we've been talking about sacrifice and through the Valley of shadows, that episode of discovery, it was the sacrifice that Pike made when he saw his future and he knew his fate, but he still decided to move forward again. There's again, all these captains, they make their sacrifices, but it really seems to be that that's the thing that is propelling Pike is just sacrificing himself for others. And I think the Pike character works well in other written materials. As you mentioned, when this book was written, there wasn't much out there about Pike, but the author does put in the back of the book um, some influences and some call outs to other novels that uh, Pike was featured in, like Legacy and The Rift and Vulcan's Glory, which we've reviewed and Where Sea Meets Sky. Um, She does mention that she did not take into consideration the comic series Star Trek the early voyages comics. She did not include that. But it's not that she was necessarily pulling directly from these stories, but they had some influence and some of the character depiction of Pike came from that. And I like to think that as I was talking earlier about through the Valley of shadows, when he sees his fate, of course, this book doesn't know that he knows his fate. Mm -hmm. And I kept thinking, well, let's just pretend that that event really did happen. And this book doesn't address it. And I thought, well, maybe because when he touches the time crystals, he knows his fate, but over a period of time, short period of time, that vision of his future starts to fade from memory. So by the time the event happens, he doesn't recall seeing that future because it faded from his memory. That's my headcanon through this book. (laughs) That's cool. I kind of like that. Interestingly, though, I think you can still read it with him knowing because I, I don't know, there's just he's still that kind of person. And in fact, the book actually says this. And I I my fiance didn't read the novel, but she did watch Discovery over the past season. And I had to read this little section to her. And I don't have it right in front of me or the page number at the moment. But the book basically said it, it was asking, like, if Pike had known that going in there would result in this, would he have done it anyway? And the answer is absolutely yes, because that's the kind of man that Pike was. And I just love that because that's basically what the show said as well. That's what Discovery said is Pike does know that this is going to happen and he will do it anyway. He will go and rescue those cadets. And not because, you know, touching a time crystal has locked it in, but because by doing that, he has guaranteed that fate for himself. He made that choice. 
he made it then and he'll make it again in the future. And I just like, that gave me goosebumps because oh I was like, Oh my gosh, it's doing, you're doing so that to cool. me right now, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> it was so cool. And like, yeah, even Nikki was, was saying, wow, that's so good. You know? Oh my gosh. I have to go back and reread that part now. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Yeah. That's saying so much. Oh my gosh. You know, another aspect of this book though, as you were just saying about, you know, that kind of alludes to the fact that, yeah, even if he does know, he would still make the sacrifice, even though he knows the outcome, he would still do it. One thing that has played through this book, even though he's, there's some time jumping in a sense, it's not a time jump novel or anything, but, you know, he's doing some flashbacks while he's telling these stories to Vina. But in these flashbacks, and even when he's on Talos 4, He's always questioning if his reality is real or are mm-hmm. the Telosians creating this image? You know, is this all, you know, in his head? Is it imagination? Are they influencing him to believe that what he's seeing experiences actually happen or is it all a dream? Back again to the title of the book, Burning Dreams. It's not just his dreams of, you know, these situations were burning, but, you know, are these, are all the events in his life just a dream? Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's a compelling question and it's one that always gets asked when you get these kind of scenarios where, you know, people are, are imagining things or, or stuck in an illusion or something like that. I really liked Spock's kind of answers like, no, that doesn't make any sense. You know, why, you know, first of all, the amount of mental energy needed to do that to the entire crew of the enterprise is, you know, astronomical and they wouldn't be able to do it. And secondly, why would they do that? And Pike's like, oh yeah, good point. But at the time I was like, what if it's just Pike? What if you're all not real Spock? Right. What about that? But, uh, and that's what Pike is questioning a lot. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like if they really wanted to completely reboot Star Trek (laughs) and just wipe it all away, like all of Star Trek from the cage has just been in Pike's mind, (laughs) you know, then they start a new Star Trek series by, you know, the Enterprise rescuing Pike or something. It's like, boy, that was a close one. (laughs) So for those of you that don't really care for discovery and think it doesn't fit into Star Trek, well, it's because it's a dream that Pike is having. There you go. Problem solved. (laughs) (laughs) That's why things look different because, you know, dreams don't always match exactly how things look in reality. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, another thing I wanted to touch on real quick is the character of Vina. We haven't really given her enough credit. We do get backstory on Vina in this Mm -hmm. book to the point that she, uh, and help me remember this, but I know she wanted to be a dancer or she was a dancer for a while and she was at university or something and had an affair or was dating one of her professors, which is actually one of the old guys we see on Talos four in the cage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the, the guy we see in the cage is like an artificially aged version of, of, this professor that she had uh, been involved with and she's, she's from Paris, I think. And Pike actually meets some of her family there, but of course doesn't say anything to them and, you know, finds the, the little um, bakery, I guess that they run and. Yeah. That was a nice little scene. Yeah. That was a lovely little scene. And I, I, you know, I, 
I don't know what I would have been done in Pike's place either. I, I think I probably would have made the same decision he did was, which was just to not say anything because, you know, they, they'd done their grieving thinking she'd been lost and all this stuff. And you know, what more would that have done? I don't know. That was, yeah, that was a really interesting scene. And one that I keep thinking about even after having finished the book. Yeah. Cause he doesn't want to tell them, uh, just so you know, uh, your daughter's still alive on another planet. She's kind of, you've been, you know, destroyed and, like, how do you explain the whole Talos thing? Yeah. <laughs> the Talos. She can't leave, though. She's been horribly, horribly mangled. Right. But she's fine. She's living in an illusion. It's a dream world. She's It's great. They've they've got... Yeah, no. That's not going to work. And you can't visit her there because there's a death penalty if you go. Yeah, there. if you go there, we will have to kill you. <laughs> <laughs> They'd probably what? be like, get out of my bakery. That guy is screwy. <laughs> yeah, this guy's nuts. <laughs> yeah, Pike's like, yeah, I'll make a lot of sacrifices, but I'm not sac- sacrificing myself on this thing. <laughs> They're not going to believe me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just kind of puts into perspective how weird this whole Star Trek thing is. Like, that's weird. <laughs> <laughs> and real quick, you know, number one has, you know, some brief appearances in here. And it's suggested, like we uh, read in Vulcan's Glory, that there's kind of a love interest between the two, but not, it never goes anywhere and they don't really admit their feelings to each other. But again, where it talks about Pike's love life, and he does eventually meet someone towards the end of the book, and he proposes to this woman and she says no, which I thought was great because I thought, oh, OK, he's proposing to her. She's going to say yes. They're about to get married. And then that's when the accident happens. And oh, it's so devastating because he just met the woman of his dreams or well, not really of his dreams because Vina's more of his dreams. But he met the woman that he's going to spend the rest of his life with. And then this accident happens to him. But no, she turns him down. And I love that part. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, again, this is this is the whole uh, this woman is Argelian and she has the gift that, you know, the same the same one that the prefect's wife had in the episode, The Wolf in the Fold. And, uh, you know, she basically kind of gets premonitions and, and doesn't necessarily see the future, but sees patterns and, and how things are going to unfold. So she basically kind of knows what's coming for Pike. And again, this kind of, and I mean, obviously, obviously Discovery was written way after this, but in my like little bit of head continuity here, she saw that memory of Pike touching the time crystal when she, you know, saw into his mind. So she, that's how she knows and like all this stuff. So I'm like, yes. Yeah. And whether he remembers that memory or not, even if the memory was suppressed, she could still tap into his mind and find it. Exactly. And I also, I also always believe that, you know, Pike maybe still remembers what he saw, but you know, we have all the context to it. We know when it's going to happen. We know exactly what's going on, but all Pike saw was what he saw. So he knows he's a fleet captain and he knows there's uh, some cadets on a ship that he's rescuing. But by the sounds of it from this book, you know, he's been a fleet captain for a while and he's done a bunch of these inspections on a bunch of ships over the years. And, you know, so I I could see how he doesn't know exactly when this is going to happen. He just, you know, knows at some point he's going to be needed to rescue a bunch of cadets. 
it would be interesting if this book were written now after discovery because mm-hmm. it would touch more on the fear that you know of pike when is this going to happen or how that vision affects his life going forward and how he approaches things and you know maybe we will get a book like that so some of that would probably contradict some of the stories we get in this which is fine but uh yeah that would be interesting that would be really cool yeah i never thought of that but you know the the change the differences to this story if it were written after the fact i think that's a really neat idea they'll call it the red angel (laughs) no so Let's go to the epilogue, um, because basically we know how Pike's story ends. He's on Talos 4, and he's with Vina for the rest of his life. So now we're in the epilogue where, just like in the beginning, Spock was contacted by the Talosians. Now we see Spock on Talos 4. And by the way, we touch on Spock here and there throughout the book, not very often, but he does have a run-in with the Excelsior as he's trying to approach Talos 4, and Sulu's like, oh, well, you know, you you shouldn't be heading there, right? I mean, that's not what you're doing, wink, wink. You know, and so just little things like that. But now he's on the planet, uh, Spock is, and he's, you know, an ambassador in 2320, and he sees the Talosians have basically rebuilt the world. He sees glimming gleaming cities and, and a lot of Talosians floating and walking around or whatever they're doing. Like, there's this whole society going on. And he runs into the original Talosians we see in the Cage of the Menagerie and, of course, also through the Valley of Shadows. And we've come to find out that the influence of Christopher Pike being there and what they've learned from Pike, his passion, his ambition, has encouraged them to help rebuild their society and rebuild the world to the way it used to be. The sad piece of this, which Spock suspected when he was called back to the planet, was that Chris has passed away, and so has Vina. Vina passed away, I think, before Chris did. And then there's a message from Pike to Spock asking that his remains be taken back to Earth, which Spock eventually does. But I really like this scene because we do get the conclusion of, of Pike, and not just that he just sat on this planet, had dreams of himself with Vina, and then just passed on, but he had influence on the mm-hmm. Talosians for them to rebuild their world. Yeah. And it, and it really does bring it full circle because of course his mother was an architect and he brings that knowledge to help them rebuild their cities and, you know, all this stuff that he learned about, you know, taming a planet and environmental, you know, helping the environment and that sort of stuff. I thought that was brilliant. And I, I had forgotten that that how it ended when I read read it this time around and I really enjoyed that I love that he has this lasting impact on Talos 4 and that you know this book really ends on a hopeful note that you know Spock can share with the Federation what he has learned about Talos 4 and witnessed there and uh, maybe one day we might see Talos being a member of the Federation and maybe at least the you know the last death penalty on the books being dropped. If you go there, uh, you know, for Spock's sake, he's been there. What? Four times now, if we count discovery. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Oh, uh, so I, I, I love that. I love that. It ends on that hopeful note. And you're right because t- the Talosians are also hoping that ambassador Spock will take 
that information back to the Federation and maybe one day become members, which I never really thought the Talosians would want or it would even possibly happen. But I think also at this point, we may even see the death penalty removed. By the way, every time that has been referred to as the death penalty going to Talosian, going to Talos 4, I never thought it was literally a death penalty. I always felt it was like, you know, one of the strictest penalties that the Federation gives and they nickname it the death penalty, but it's not an actual death. That's always what I thought because it doesn't make sense for them to have a real death penalty just because you visited a planet. Yeah, it doesn't make sense to me either, but I don't know. You watch the menagerie. <laughs> They're talking about, you know, it's Spock's life on the line and that sort of thing. I, I you know, I think for the stakes of the episode, they wanted it to be, you know, that high. But I'm I'm actually really glad that when we get there in Discovery, they don't even bring that up because yeah. I don't think it makes sense at all. <laughs> Yeah, that's why I just pretend that, oh, it's not really a death penalty, but it's a really bad penalty and yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you reread the book. So overall, what is your rating for Burning Dreams? I really enjoyed it. I came into this intending to give it a four out of five. But, you know, the more we've talked about it, I, I, I think I have to bump that up because, you know, there's so much really good stuff in here. I really love the character of Christopher Pike. I loved how, you know, the author talks at the end about how there's so little information about Pike. Like we feel like there's so much out there about Pike because he's been there from the beginning, but really it's just that one episode until discovery and, you know, the Kelvin timeline as well. We don't see a lot of Pike at all. So, you know, there was not a lot to go from. And from that, this whole life story that I think is really compelling and really interesting uh, was was created for him. So, yeah, I think I have to give this one five out of five of those little jelly plants that give off a certain color when there's going to be an earthquake because those are pretty cool. I want those. <laughs> yeah. I like this too. <laughs> yeah. I'm with you on this, um, which usually I am with you on most of these things, but yeah, it's, it's just a really good inside look at the character of Pike and it, it doesn't tell the story in a linear fashion of, Oh, he was born. And then we see him as an adolescent and a teenager. And then, you know, we get some of that, but, and it's not a time, story either time travel story of any kind but it really is that taking place on talus four and him looking back on his life and the Talosians looking at his life and trying to learn from it and he's telling the stories to vena and vena is kind of challenging him and trying to understand and i think there was times where chris is even questioning if he's even getting aspects of his life in his memory of it correct and so we're taken on this journey along with him and looking back at his life and what influenced him and what sacrifices he made and brought him to this endpoint in his career and now in his life and starting anew on Talos 4. While at the same time, the donut around this is Spock in the future, the ambassador who has who is missing his captain, his friend from all these years and know that he's on this planet and gets this call to come back and realizes that Chris may and more likely has passed on. 
and then we see the outcome of the influence he had. So yeah, there's so much to this. I would give this, you know, four and a half gizmos that are <laughs> trying to save the planet. Nice. That's a really good rating. Well, I think we've definitely both agreed that this is a one of the top-notch Star Trek novels to feature Captain Pike that we've read so far, although we've only read two so far. I think there's a few more to come, or at least one more to come in the future. Yeah, there's at least one more. I think there's a couple more that are coming, actually, but there's even more out there than I think some people know. I mean, there's some books that it doesn't focus totally on Pike, but there's some books out there that there are some some stories of Pike within the book, maybe like a framing story or flashback or whatever. I just know that there's there's a few out there, but we'll touch on the ones that are more prominently Pike stories. And the early Voyages comics, I don't think we'll get to those because there's you know several issues, but I don't know. We'll figure out a way maybe to work those in someday. I, I really want to revisit those comics because I think that would be really cool. I do remember really enjoying them. I do have to say there is one thing that that uh, the author brought over from those comics in this, and that's the chief engineer of the Enterprise at this time. Uh, chief engineer moves with burning grace, which yes. I, I, I think he's a, just the coolest character in the in the comics. So that was really cool. By the way, I don't know if we've said this on the show before or maybe we did in the last episode, but I'm going to bring it up again if we if we did. But. You know, Una is now canon for number one. I don't mm-hmm. know if we mentioned that last time, but it's appropriate to say it now, too. Yeah, I, I can't remember if we mentioned that or not, but there, Pike does refer to her as Una in that final episode of season two of Discovery. Yeah, which was awesome, which I didn't catch. You had to point out to me. I was like, oh, my gosh, that's what I always <laughs> wanted. I thought, Ooh, it'd be, I mean, I'd be fine if it didn't happen, but I, I, I was going to be giddy if it did. And I was giddy when it did. So, but anyway, it's not giddiness that we're talking about here just on Trek FM. There's other things, you know? So here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Earl Grey. But I don't know, like that, that one, as I was looking through the examples, I was like, that's pretty badass to just take that risk. And I think Riker's taken it back. He's like, you're going to kill Deanna? No, don't do that. But I, I think she convinces him, like, this is this is the way we have to, to do it. So I don't know. What do you think? Wow. That was not even <laughs> on my radar. <laughs> Versus... Well, of course, it's killing I Troy. Know, yeah. you know? <laughs> Literary treks. The, it, it always frustrated me because on, on screen, we saw in depth the Klingon government, the Bajoran government, the Cardassian government, to a lesser extent, the Romulan government. We almost never saw the Federation government. You know, we, we three three times we saw a president. Once we saw the council. The council was mentioned any number of times, but we never really saw it. Warp five. I thought it was cool when he when he, he hits it. It's, it's like, like knocking wood. on a door. It's like, so did they install like a wooden neck for him or something? Right. It doesn't make any sense. You know what? I leave that up to, I guess people had less knowledge of biology overall, you know, the general public in 1939. So, yeah. whatever. We gotta file that under, we, we just gotta go with it and we'll file that under our neck cannon. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. Melodic Treks. Star Trek Three was Christopher Lloyd's crew. 
you know, mm-hmm. and and I mean the, the, his impact on on that culture and race of Klingons and the rest of the franchise is, is, is still being felt. And, and to me, he's my second favorite Star Trek uh, movie villain. Right, Khan would obviously be first, and then Krug is number two after that for me. Not the whale probe. Is the whale probe just misunderstood? <laughs> <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. Check out all these shows and join the conversation about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond, and you'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button in Apple Podcasts on iPhone, iPad, or Apple TV, or the desktop iTunes app to get the latest episodes as soon as they're published. And please leave us a star rating and written review. We'd really appreciate that. If you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Google Play Music, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, YouTube, in most third-party apps. And you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website or grab the RSS link there as well. And if you'd like to help us keep all of our shows coming to you each and every week, you can become a patron on the network through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash trekfm. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash trekfm to get all the details. Perks include early access to episodes, exclusive content, producer credits, and more. Available through our special patrons website, Patron Zone. It requires a great deal of money to produce, host, and distribute these shows each month. And we really appreciate any support you can give us and hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. We'd love to hear your thoughts on today's show, and there are many ways for you to share those thoughts with us. The best place to join in the larger conversation is the Babel Conference. That's our listeners group on Facebook. Just type Babel, that's B-A-B-E-L, into the search field on Facebook, and it should come right up. If you'd like to send us an email, you can use the form on our website at trek.fm contact. Choose to send to a show and select Literary Treks, and that'll come right to us. You can also find the network on Twitter, we're at trekfm, and on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. And you can find us on our Goodreads group, where we have bookshelves that show all the previously covered novels, as well as books that we're currently reading, so you know what's coming up on future shows. Plus, there's great conversations happening about the books and comics, so just search for Literary Treks on Goodreads and click Join Group. And we'd like to thank Norman C. Lau, Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, Brandon Shamatella, Justin Ozer, and Jeffrey Harlan for their support of the Trek FM network and being associate producers for Literary Treks as well. So, Dan, when you're not on a colony planet as a New Worlder driving around in your Ferrari, where can people find you? Well, I certainly will not be talking on my cell phone whilst doing that, because you should not do that and drive at the same time, (laughs) New Worlders. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, unlike them, I embrace modern technology that has been invented since the end of the 20th century. So you can find me on Twitter. I'm at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You can also find me on youtube.com slash Productions, where I make videos about Star Trek, uh, facebook.com slash Productions, and of course you can find me in the Babel Conference. Now Bruce, when you're not fiddling with the gizmo trying to get those darn earthquakes under control, where can we find you? Well, my gizmo is putting me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and my gizmo generates me 
to the point where I can host a show with Brandy Jackala to talk about Star Trek Discovery on Live from the Edge, which is our live show after each new episode of Star Trek Discovery. And the gizmo brings me to Star Wars on the Star Wars Report. And of course, you can always find me in the Gizmo Babel Conference on Facebook. So thanks everyone for listening. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.